Welcome to the Cobot Show, the podcast that breaks down the barriers of industrial automation. My name is Danielle Marlette from Universal Robots, and today we're talking about when to start automating. Talking with me today is Joe Campbell, industrial marketeer who has been in the industry for over 40 years. And we also have with us a guest speaker, Kale Harbour from Advanced Control Solutions, who is their VP of Product Marketing and has been in the industry for over 28 years. So, let's talk about automation. Well, Kale, uh, welcome to the podcast. I am so happy to have you on with me. Um, we're both old timers, but I can definitely say I'm older than you, and that's a good thing. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Joe. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you and swap a few stories and ideas back and forth. Absolutely. Well, I think between the two of us, we have seen just about every customer situation and scenario you could imagine. And um, I thought it would be good today to talk about uh, people who maybe don't have the perfect idea about how to automate or where to start. And um, maybe we walk through a little bit of that process. Um, sure, it can I be know, a little bit of a daunting task to know where to begin at. It is. What, so what kind of guidance, when you, when you get that first phone call and, and somebody's exploring automation, what kind of guidance do you give them? What, what information are you looking for up front to get the process started? Well, when someone approaches me and they want to get started with automation, you know, they, they have to have a need for it. They have to have something that they're looking to either improve the workflow process. They've got to have something where they need to improve the quality of what they're doing. They need to be able to fill labor gaps where they're not able to hire the right people at the right time to fill certain jobs, especially jobs that are repetitive in nature that might be causing repetitive motion injuries for someone. So I don't think anybody goes out there and buys automation just as a, you know, at this level of, as a hobby, just to put in their garage and play with. Uh, so there generally has to be a need associated with it, uh, first and foremost. And then yeah, I 100% agree. I, we, we always look for the pain point. There's, there's some kind of pain in the manufacturing process that uh, the customer's trying to get rid of. And that's what we try to try to dig out and understand. Yep. But uh, the other thing they have to have is they need to understand themselves. So if you've got a manufacturer, you've got that real talented person on staff, that controls guy, or, or even in a lot of cases, we'll see smaller manufacturers that don't have a degreed engineer, but they've got that, that gentleman that's high school degree, but they've been with them for 10, 12, 15 years. They got a real good head on their shoulders, can figure it out can be great candidates for a collaborative robot install and to be able to get automation up and running because of the way the product is, is done. But then we've got other customers that, that just don't have that talent. They don't have that resource. They don't have someone who can think about how to solve the problem from that blank white piece of paper and they need help to get started with it. So the, the other thing is understanding yourself. What resources do you have at what level can you work on? Yeah, we see that as uh, it's kind of a it's a common a common challenge. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things I try to do is is really counsel customers to really talk to the operator because I mean, how many times have we found an operator that's really developed their own workaround to a process problem, and uh, it's not in any of the documentation, uh, but it's what the it's what the guys on the line are doing to get the the project to work. Absolutely. It's critical to have that operator feedback from the floor, from the people who've been doing these jobs. Uh, more than once we've had 
applications where people will bring us a, a good repetitive application, something that needs to be automated and we get in there and it doesn't produce the quality parts and it doesn't meet the specs. And then we find out from the operator, oh yeah, those prints haven't been right for eight years. I've been doing this extra <laughs> deburr or I'm doing this extra polish or I'm doing this extra handling and it's not documented anywhere other than in the tribal knowledge of the manufacturing floor. So it's critical to get that into the process up front and have the operator involved in the design of the cell because it does other things for you. Not only do you get access to that tribal knowledge, you also get the operator performing at a level where they feel more empowered. They feel a little more at a higher level with what they're doing because they're involved in it and they have more buy-in and the project gets to be more successful and you get a more satisfied operator on the floor at the same time. 100% agree with that. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I come from the, the traditional side of, of automation, and I, that's where I spent most of my career. I mean, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed the, uh, the cobot space here for the last year and a half. But uh, on the traditional side, it was very rare that you'd move forward on a project without having some kind of written spec. Um, do you find that's the case in the, in the land of collaborative robots, or do they take a different approach? I think the collaborative environment has opened up a lot of things to where instead of having to have that hard spec that identifies every step of the process, because you were using uh, years ago, Joe, if we really go back, I was trained in pneumatic logic circuits. Um, ouch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, ouch, big time. Um, when you think about those type circuits or the early PLCs or even a ladder logic base, if you don't have every little step called out, then you're not going to be able to reproduce. But now in the world that we live in with collaboratives, we can do things built in with pre-done routines that are drop-down menu-oriented for forced feedback, for polishing control, for path generation that doesn't require all those steps. And if you don't know the height of your parts, it doesn't matter. The robot can go down until it feels it. So it opens up an area mm -hmm. where you don't have to have absolutely everything predefined there's some things you can can figure out as you go yeah that's uh, and i agree and it's it's uh, it's certainly that flexibility makes a big difference in getting a project up and running quickly yeah but i think one of the things not to get overly simplified with is i do think you need a good manual task map and when you look at a robot cell you still need to know who's the end customer so if i'm uh, handling parts into a grinder, for example, the end customer is either the next operator or the next piece of equipment that's gonna receive it. I have to know what shape that part needs to be in for them to receive it correctly. I have to know how the parts are being presented to me. And I have to know what the process is to handle that part to be machined, assembled, dispensed, whatever it is. So mm -hmm. I still need the manual task map of what has to be achieved. But some of the details such as random height stack, analog sensor inputs can be worked out and fleshed out as you're deploying the system. You don't just have to have every minutia, but you do have to have an overall scope of what it is you're trying to achieve. Kale, I happen to know that you're, you know, you guys are actively selling to, you know, big accounts, big automotive OEMs, um, and very small uh, customers as well. How does your approach change when you're going from a big account that probably already has some automation in place down to a small account that maybe has nothing. Wow. You know, it. I don't 
know that it's completely that simple because we've got some small accounts that are very sticklers for making sure that they're spending their money wisely, investing in the right thing. And we have large accounts that can be a little more free. We have a budget. Then we may have a large account that has a very strict spec. It has to meet these requirements and have to have a certain functionality or rating or serviceability. And then smaller accounts that can fly by the seat of their pants a little more because they have the freedom of being independently owned in a smaller company and not reporting to a board of directors. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, I, I, there is a, a difference between dealing with a large account where you're dealing with probably a few more written specs, probably a few more written standards that you have to be aware of overall. But at the end of the day, it's still people dealing with people trying to get a job done and trying to improve the process accordingly. And, and there's a lot of similarities with it as well. Yeah. What about different industries? I mean, I, we all know that, you know, automotive and, uh, you know, the, on the whole is roughly 50% of the automation market, and it's been that way for a long time. Um, do you see behavioral differences or attitude differences towards automation between industries? Uh, for example, automotive versus uh, uh, one that you and I were just talking about was the, you know, building products, for example. Yeah. When you're dealing with a, an automotive account, not just the, the assemblers, but the tier ones, tier twos, tier threes, they're very familiar with dealing in robotic automation. Industrial robots have been around in the, since the 60s, and that is a technology that's already proven itself in those environments. But when you get out into the non-traditional, the non-automotive areas that have never seen this before, a, a, con a custom prescription contact lens manufacturer or we even have a customer of ours that needed a piece of equipment to be able to perform life tests, which I wish I could describe the process, but I can't, but putting little pieces of paper into a machine and then pulling them back out and putting them back in again to test the automation inside that dispenser and reclamation mm. machine where They've never done that before with automation. It's always been a human being because that sense of touch and feedback, the ability to put the robot in the environment without all the traditional safety cages always prevented it. And the ability to run a test in the morning to another test in the afternoon never existed until now. So this is a world of wonder where they never thought they'd be able to automate. They never thought they'd be able to have this. And now we're able to get it set up and they can run a live test on their equipment in three days, what previously took three weeks, because now they can run 24-7 and pull the analytics out of it. And it's a world of wonder that's opening up areas we've never been able to before. What was the what was the pain point that it had you guys coming in the front door? Were they struggling with labor, or is it just throughput, or a little bit of both? It's a, it was a little bit of both. So that particular customer builds um, uh, equipment for the financial industry where you may be aware you can walk up and put your little plastic card in a machine and it gives you a little mm -hmm. piece of the paper back out of it. And all that automation inside to make sure that the right piece of paper is being dispensed and the card is working and the piece of plastic gets returned and all of that mechanism and mechanical interface gets made on a production line, 60 units a day. And they set up a cell and they have one person that ran back and forth 60 feet down an aisleway, putting a piece of paper in this one, pulling it out of that one, putting it in this one, taking it wow. out of that one. And they're just running back and forth all day long because they would have eight of these devices in a test array. And we were able to simplify that process and be able to set it up and be able to tend that. 
where the repetitive motion, the turnover was huge on that role. So being able to eliminate the turnover, the reduced training cost, the improved efficiencies, and instead of a machine waiting for the person to come back and reset it, the robots there are instantly able to continue the next cycle. So they were able to improve throughput, reduce repetitive motion, improve operator uh, morale in the area. It, it just really opened up. A, there were a lot of things that brought us into that. Yeah, just all over you know, productivity. Absolutely. Yep. You know, I want to come back and talk a little bit uh, later about the, the COVID-19 crisis and, and what we're seeing. But, um, you know, prior to uh, prior to the outbreak, um, you know, the steady the steady message that we got from all manufacturers was uh, labor um, shortage of manufacturing labor, difficult to hire, uh, expensive to train, a lot of turnover. Um, was that uh, was that and is that in fact still one of the you know the number one pain points that you're seeing that automation is uh, is attacking? I think so. Uh, from what we're hearing so far, that's still a concern. Making sure that people have the right operators, the right staff. We're still getting phone calls from folks that have projects that have been delayed, projects that aren't moving quite as fast, but they haven't been eliminated from the list because they still know they have to achieve that project. They're expecting the business to come back. Mm -hmm. And that wealth of skilled labor shortage is still a crisis. Joe, you and I have uh, done several presentations together talking about the labor crisis and the, the number of retirees of skilled personnel that's still occurring on a daily basis. I'm almost wondering if right now with this, if the retiree process might actually accelerate to where we were having 10,000 a day leaving the marketplace, it, maybe it bumps to 12 or 14 and just makes the crisis even worse in the coming months. You know, if, uh, Kale, that is absolutely a great point. Um, and that the statistic that Kale's referring to is that um, at this point, 27% of the manufacturing workforce is age 55 or older, which says you're going to likely be replacing 27% of your manufacturing workforce in the next 10 years. And that could be accelerating. I, I can absolutely, I can absolutely see that happening. Um, I think the other point I keep hearing is that um, even though it's horrific, the amount of unemployment we have right now in the U S and it's just a painful number to talk about, you know, when you talk about 25 to 30 million people, uh, we are going to get back to a new normal. And um, I think at that point, the underlying issue of manufacturing labor is still going to be with us. It's not going away. I don't see it going away at all. And, and what we're hearing a little bit from our customers and a little bit from the marketplace where we're at is the future of being able to bring more manufacturing back into the country, expand the manufacturing that's here. So we're not as dependent on places around the globe and other parts of the world where we have more of that capacity in-house, in addition to the labor crisis already being accelerated from people maybe taking early retirement faster, if we also have that influx of additional manufacturing moving the area, that just compounds the labor problem, which is the entire premise of why we need automation and we need to grow these automation solutions because that's going to be a void that's got to be filled. No, I think you're right. I think the other topic that I hear um, right now is, you know, in many states, manufacturing is just getting ready to reopen. Um, I live, uh, Danielle and I both live up here in Michigan, and, you know, we're, this is auto country, and the 
auto OEMs are gearing up right now. The tier ones are starting to make parts and they're starting to fill the supply chain uh, to go back into production. But they're making dramatic changes to get some social distancing on the assembly lines. Um, are you hearing that same story down in your end of the world? We've heard a couple of the same things. Some of the, the food producers are looking at expanding their lines apart to separate their workers more have more spaces between them to be aware of the social distancing practices we're moving through. Uh, it hasn't picked up as a huge trend yet. That's not a, been a major topic that's been discussed, but at this particular point, we're just now in the early stages of folks going back to work and ramping back up in a more serious tone. So it would not surprise me if that does not become a more regular request that we get is to help automation separate those things out. No, I think so. I definitely think so. And, and then of course we're 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 hearing very much from the you know the community making uh, all matter of medical products and devices, but particularly anybody who's making PPE is really looking for increased output. So I don't think that's going to change for quite a while. No, I don't see that going away at all. Um, Kale, I'd like to segue to a little bit and talk about the process of integrating automation. Um, you know, I know you is uh, is a really strong value-added uh, distributor, um, but is there a point in time when it makes sense to bring in a full-blown integrator into a project? Uh, and conversely, are there projects that are most appropriate for the do-it-yourselfer? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a role for uh, a person to be able to do the project on their own a value-add distributor and a full integrators. And where I really see the differences is one, and we kind of alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation, what staff do they have? Have they got that talented resource? Doesn't necessarily have to be a degreed engineer, but if they've got the right talented resource on site, I've gotten to work with many end user accounts that have been able to deploy automation on their own because they had the right staff, they had the right vision, and they had the right resources. Beyond that, you get into an area that requires a little extra expertise where the value-add distributor can come in and help with maybe we're dealing with the polishing routine or the force feedback or we're helping with the data analytics coming out to populate the database for the KPI numbers or tying in the camera, tying in a third-party device to round out a deburring application or a welding application and being able to put that together where they really don't need a full custom line, but they need some help. And they need help beyond what they can do, but it's not a large enough project for a full integrator to really be interested or worth their time. It's too small for them and it fits that void between the two. And that's where our staff can come into play as a value add distributor to be able to help with that. But then when you're talking about building a complete cell, uh, we actually have a company in our area that does medical test kits and they have to assemble in a box one of five or six different items, but they have to have the unfeeders and the part unscramblers and the sorters and all of the other devices that run with it. And it's everything's got to be designed. Frames have got to be designed from the ground up. The entire mm -hmm. system's got to be put together, tied together, multiple PLCs. That's beyond what a value-add distributor gets involved in. That is where you've got to have that talent of the full integrator with the full staff to be able to tie all those pieces together and make it talk seamlessly. Well, I also think it's uh, you're you're you've got a good view of that because I, I think understanding where 
the value-added distributor or the integrator fits keeps everybody out of trouble. That can also be a real, a real issue um, where we see project challenges that uh, maybe are not quite anticipated. Um, yep, one of the other points I wanted to come back to is, um, you know, you talked about supporting the do-it-yourself or you guys have invested heavily in a training infrastructure um, and is, and can you maybe talk a little bit about how that works and what benefits you're seeing out of it? You know, it's been one of the founding cornerstones of the founder of ACS, uh, Mr. David Piliad, that if you have the ability to bring your customers in to become trained on your technical product, to understand more about how they can have the ownership of it, be able to deploy it, maintain it, and lower their overall cost of ownership of the equipment, then you're more likely to have that long-term business relationship between the companies because each person is able to do more with it and the automation equipment itself is able to produce better results at the end user. So what we've done over the years is developed a very in-depth training program uh, in 2019, which is my last you know full year of numbers, we did 38 customer facing training events and they spanned the gamut over our product lines. And with that, we had over 360 people from over 200 companies attend one of our training classes to learn more about our products. So by bringing them in, we're able to get their hands on with the robots. We're able to get their hands on with the trainers and the equipment. We're able to spend time with them and let them practice and play and learn and ask the what ifs and how do I make this run? And it runs a gamut. Some will come to our class and they learn enough to get started and they do the project on their own. But then we also have plant managers or maybe engineering managers come in and say, I want to come and see, is this equipment something that I want to put my flag in the sand with? And then they'll bring us in to help out with the project because they don't want to do it on their own. They just want to come to the class and kick the tires and make sure it's going to meet their requirements. So we're seeing it be able to accelerate the entire process. So we can go quicker from beginning to production and be able to help their bottom line revenue and basically improve their operational expenses by lowering their costs quicker. We get to move faster on our projects. Everybody gets something out of it. And we're able to move on and, and uh, build like a snowball and, and continue to add what we can bring to the market. Uh, so here's the, the question I think everybody in the whole industry is wrestling with right now. Um, uh, how are you doing that in today's virtual environment? Because, uh, uh, you know, we're all under some degree or another of lockdown uh, here for these past few weeks or months, and yet business is going forward. How, how, what are you guys doing to cope with that? Well, uh, several things. The owner of our company, Mr. David Pilia, had the foresight last year to invest in a 1,200-square-foot automation lab where we're able to be able to have our sales staff log in remotely from another area with their customer to be able to run equipment, robots, mm. automation solutions where we can do remote virtual demos with our customers without necessarily having to carry all the equipment out. So we can speed up the entire development process and reduce the overhead associated. Wow. But just like everybody else right now, we're also in the midst of learning how to do more webinar-based remote training sessions. And we're in the process of, of really bringing that online to be able to take what we've learned in our workshops and be able to take what we've learned in our remote demos 
into a you know webinar-based environment as best we can to be able to keep that information going out. But one of the things I've tried to do, UR is a great example. The UR Academy, everybody can go onto the UR Academy online and learn the basics on how to program a UR robot. So what we tried to do is topics that don't compete with what you've already done. So mm -hmm. we did webinar this morning, how to set up communications between the Cognex camera and UR robot. That's something that's not on your website. Uh, if people need to know the basics, we refer them to the UR Academy. So we're trying to collaborate with our topics with what you're already doing. So we're not both spending our time working on the same topic. We're able to complement each other and be able to expand the knowledge faster. That's a great point. You know, one of the one of the breakthrough points that that we've seen time and again is uh, is is getting the realization from the customer that the UR product is truly easy to program. Um, and easy to grasp in a very short period of time. Are you able to get that message through when you're working in this virtual environment? So far, the feedback that we've gotten from the customers who've attended some of our virtual sessions, yes, that's absolutely the case. And one of the things that, that we even did this morning is we went through a step-by-step -step process on how to set up camera and robot communications for a vision-guided pick-and-place. The comments that we got from our attendees was that by going through the process, the step-by-step, -step, they walked away feeling like it was something that they could do, something like they could handle, and it was still going to be simple enough that this was the type of technology they needed to be considering. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well, tell me, tell me about uh, some of the unique projects that you've done that maybe are a little bit off the beaten path. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, 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 you know, we all do a lot of machine tool load and unload and you know, a lot of packaging and uh, palletizing, um, but I, I'm guessing that over the years you have seen some very interesting uh, projects. Oh, do I get, uh, do you want just the uh, UR robot projects or is Absolutely. this fully open-ended? No, let's stick it to the UR robot projects. Darn, we'll I got on, some we'll good keep, ones we'll from back on in the day, Joe. Here, so Danielle's happy with us. Okay. The biggest one that comes to mind is we have a manufacturer in our area of window blinds. You know, we've all seen the, mm -hmm. The, the window blinds that you, know, you raise up and down, you got the slats that tilt in and out, and they have a life test facility here in the area. And what they do is they will bring in either models or versions of the blinds they have on the market for quality tests. They'll bring in a new design to make sure it's going to live up to expectations, or they'll bring in a competitor to see how they perform against it. So Joe, let's let's pretend for a minute that, that you're a new employee and you're going to work here in the test lab and I hand you a window blind and your job is to mount it to a frame and what you're gonna do is you're gonna raise it, you're gonna lower it, you're gonna open and close the blinds, wait 15 seconds and do it again. And you're going to do that for 15,000 cycles over the next three weeks. I don't know if I'm coming back from lunch on the first day, that's a tough one. Yeah, so eight hours a day. Raise the blind, lower the blind, open, close. Raise the blind, lower the blind, open, close. Well, what we did with them is we worked with them. They attended one of our classes. They came to the training. They learned how to get up and started with it. They purchased a UR10 from us. They put it on a frame in front of this cell, and they took one of their operators, a wonderful man, high school degree, not college educated, and we worked with them and taught them how to use the robot. They hired us for a couple days to help create the CSV files for the 
data acquisition to come back from the load cells so they knew how much force it was taking. So they brought us in for a piece of it. We taught them how to do it, and they were able to go from a three-week test cycle to three days because now they could run 24-7 through lunch, no breaks, and the data they got was not just a human perception. You know, like, Joe, if I asked you to pull on a cord and I said, is that hard or easy? Well, that's completely dependent on your definition of what hard and easy is. Mm -hmm. Here we were able to get real-world data, and now they could complete six tests in the same time period that they could do just one previous. Wow. So uh, having a robot raise and lower mini blinds all day, every day is, uh, is quite an unusual sight. And they've already purchased a second unit with plans for a third to be able to extend that capacity. You know, that's a fantastic story. And it's, it, uh, it reinforces one of the themes that, uh, that I like to talk about. And that is uh, collaborative robots are an incremental investment. You don't have to look for the million dollar problem and a million dollar project. Um, there's there's plenty of opportunity in today's manufacturing environment for a small problem like that and in uh, a relatively cost-effective solution that deploys quickly. And it's, it's yes. one of those dull, dull projects out of our dirty, dull, and dangerous. It's not, you know, something that you're in a dirty environment it, or it's not crazy dangerous, but could you imagine sitting there and opening and closing those, how your elbow would feel at the end of the day? Those repetitive motions and tasks, just perfect for a, a cobot. Yeah, yep, absolutely agree. Kale, that was a fantastic story, and I think we're kind of coming up to the end of our podcast. Could um, could you give us some information if our uh, listeners would like to reach out to ACS and maybe talk with you more about your experiences and maybe even talk about a project? Yeah, would love to be able to uh, work with anybody out there. Uh, we cover four states for UR, so we're Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi. Would love to be able to discuss projects. You can reach us at our website, advancedcontrolinc.com. Our general email box is info, I-N-F-O, at A-C-S-G-A.com. If you shoot an email with my name on it to that address, it will get to me, and I will be happy to follow up with anyone who needs some additional information. Fantastic. Danielle, why don't you tell people where to find us? Yes. Thank you, Kale, so much for, for joining us today. And if you have some questions about um, learning about automation, you want to dive a little bit deeper, um, especially with a cobot, shoot us an email at ur.na at universal-robots.com or you can also find a lot more about what we talked about today at universal-robots.com for more information about our podcast or just other cobot or automation topics hey kale thanks again friend it's uh, always good to talk with you always good to talk to you joe danielle thank you for having me on i greatly appreciate it and i hope y'all have a great day Thank you. Thank you. We have a lot of automation information coming your way. So if you aren't already following The Cobot Show, follow us here on Spotify. And if you're looking for your next steps in automation, visit universal-robots.com or send us an email at ur.na at universal-robots.com if you have a specific question about what we discussed today or if you have a suggestion for a future podcast.